This is Catalog and Cocktails, presented by Data.World. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Catalog and Cocktails. It's an honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management with tasty beverages in hand. Presented by Data.World live from Data.World today in Austin, Texas. Um, I'm Tim Gasper, longtime data nerd and product guy at Data.World, joined by Juan. Hey, Tim. Hey. Nice to see you here. Good to see you in person. You're a real person. <laughs> we are. We are. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist here at Data.World. And it's so awesome to always, every Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the day, take a break, talk about data, and we get to do this in person. We're in the Data.World office today. So we actually may be seeing people come by and actually have a live audience. But today, we are really, really excited to have the following person. Karen Lopez is somebody who I've been following for a long time on Twitter, and I have always bumped into her at the different EDW conferences, the Enterprise Data World conferences, and just following her on Twitter as Data Chick, she is so cool. And I love how uh, you even say, Karen, that you're snarky on your tweets and everything, so I love it. Yeah. Karen, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy this is all about data and cocktails, two of things I also tweet about from time to time. <laughs> Love this. So let's start off with our tell and toast. So what are we drinking and what are we toasting for? Karen, kick us off. Yeah. So my favorite cocktail, and I've got it in the wrong glass. It should be served in a coupe, you know, like the flat champagne glasses, people call them. Um, but it is a prohibition era cocktail. It's called The Last Word, and it is made up of equal parts of gin, lime juice, Luxardo maraschino liqueur, and green chartreuse. Mm. And that sounds kind of weird, but it's one of those cocktails where all those flavors come together and make a brand new flavor. It's really good. I really like it. And um, and normally, of course, you would serve it without ice, but I have ice in mind to kind of slow down how quickly I drink it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I, I'm a big fan of the last word cocktail, which I know has um, a green shirt and mustardo in it. Oh, is that a last word? Last word. And then there's another version that I make called Ultima Palabra, which is oh, okay, cool. Spanish, and you make it with mezcal instead of gin. Ooh, ooh, that so sounds good. Nice smoky. I'm a big fan of your choice today. <laughs> yeah, well, this is, makes us realize that we need to up our game here in the office because uh, we have our cart right now in the back, but it only has just liquor, just bottles, so we have no mixtures or anything. So today, hey, we're like, what are we going to combine here? So. Well, I think I last like- time we were just kind of doing boring uh, soda and, and vodka. So yeah. Yeah, look, I'm gonna, I am sipping on some really nice Japanese whiskey. This is Kayo, which we just had here. Uh, it's really nice. I like this here. Mm-hmm. How about you? And uh, I'm sipping a little bit of this Broken Top Rye from Oregon. We've got a few folks that dated our world from Oregon, and this is quite good. It's a, a really smooth flavor. So we're, we're going a little bit, uh, a little straight today. <laughs> and I'm a big fan of rye because it's a Canadian whiskey, right? For, that's when, when you order a whiskey here, you're more likely to get a rye mm-hmm. instead of a bourbon or a scotch. Yeah, I love rye. So we're uh, we're toasting for hey, being here in the office. This is uh, we're kicking off our quarter. It's uh, all hands week, so it's just great to be around people today and, and this whole entire week. So that's what we're toasting. What are you yeah. toasting for, Karen? Um, so I'm toasting for I want people to love their data and be part of team data. So that I, I'm really playing to the crowd here. 
<laughs> I, and you know, one of the things that you tweet about a lot is like you ask these questions and like, do you know about, uh, have you backed up your data? Do you know where that is? Yeah. And I just like, love your data, please. Love your data. I, 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 these are the types of tweets that you put out. That's why I love following you. So yeah. All right. Yeah. Cheers to loving Cheers. our data and to being in person. So we got our funny warm-up question today. Uh-huh. So if Sports Illustrated had an issue dedicated to data models, what would be on the cover? <laughs> um, see, it's Sports Illustrated, though. Um, or we can change it to whatever. whatever I know, I'm hearing you. Um, wow. So this is so hard for me, but... I spent a lot of time in my career working on pattern data models or industry standard data models. And so if I was going to say, you know, what, what would be an exciting way to look at data modeling, I'd say starting, never starting from a blank page. So sometimes these are called universal data models or pattern data models or industry standard ones. That's my nerd answer. Uh, sort of my space data chick thing would be to have something on there that uh, NASA and a bunch of other space agencies around the world hold the world's largest largest global hackathon this fall. It, it's normally in person, it'll be virtual again, but it's all around using space agency open data. So it's not just coding, it's about um, using open data to solve real world earth or space problems and that is the space apps challenge so i really i would celebrate that oh that's i think connected to the spacing i would just i'll, I'll take it pretty simple but i i love the star schema right this is I oh love yeah the, that'd be cool too the star, yeah. right this is this is nice and i love when i start thinking about modeling i think about well you got your your fact table but for me it's like what is the most important thing that you are yeah. that you're interested around is it like an order and what's the most important thing around something else you're interested in? it's a customer so the e yeah. by themselves they're like their own stars but then they all start yeah. to get connected and you get this really nice starry graph of models so that, that that's yeah. mine <laughs> how about you tim um this is a hard one i was trying to read into the analogy a little bit and i was like well maybe it's a key value lookup table because you're looking at it a lot and it's real thin i don't know does that take you know, a joke too far your first question, you're already talking data religion, like whether you're star <laughs> schema or snowflake modeler, because those really are. And then now we have data vault. So they're all sort of religions around how we think about data, how we model it, how we design and everything. So it's kind of interesting. You started with a fun question that still led us down to a bunch of contentious issues. Educational and slightly contentious path. <laughs> so let's, all right, let, let, let's get into our honest, no BS discussion. So Karen, honest, no BS. Why is the simplest data in the world the hardest to model and design? Um, so I've been thinking about this for quite a long time. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason it's hard to model is even data experts think the world is simple and therefore they do designs around names and locations and events, but they're only thinking of like the 50% the of the distribution of data. So the example I use is that I reference this blog post all the time that's um, falsehoods that programmers believe about names and it's a list, like the original post has, let's see, 40 
myths that people, it says programmers, but it, it's, it's things like people believe that names don't change. Well, they believe that they change, but only a certain enumerated sets leave, lead to name changes. Um, people's first and last names are by necessity different. Um, people's names are unique. They're almost unique. Um, they only ever are expressed in one uh, character set. Like there's all of these things. Once you start reading all these just the exceptions, you realize that just modeling first name, last name doesn't even begin to cover what you need to model about first name and last name, just a person's name. And the first thing that's wrong is, of course, in many cultures, their first name is their last name and their last name is their first name, which means we shouldn't be calling it first name and last name. So I use given name and family name. But then that confuses people that have only ever heard first name and last name. So you can see, like I've picked on one tiny thing that most people in the world think is the easiest thing in the world to model. And it's just not true. Now, so I'll, let's go dive into kind of first thing to yeah. last thing. Because I really want this to be kind of a, I want the folks who are listening to have aha moments on like, yeah. we're not just kind of pontificating. It's like, no, this thing right. is probably impacting the work that you're doing today. So yeah. let me get more into that. What other ones should we get into? Like, I like to always talk about telephone numbers, uh, address. Yeah. What, are, what are the other, what are other types of, 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 of things that we think are easy, but are definitely not? Email addresses and all the contact mechanisms, like your Twitter ID or your Twitter account. Like most people don't know that you can set up a Twitter account without an email address or without a phone number. And if you were modeling it, you'd find out that something as easy as your Twitter ID is also complex and that it changes and that it can belong to another person over time or it can be shared. Like there's just so much, like I'm getting all excited about it because I was born thinking about data, but it really is like, I just keep coming back to the things you think are the simplest to model are actually complex because the world is complex. So I say in a lot of my talks, if you want your data model to be simple, go out and make the world simple and then come back to me because then I can make the data model simple. I, like I, can't that just, I can't do it just because you think I've got, I'm, I'm dealing with too many edge cases. So the example I use, so my dad is of Mexican heritage and he was born without a middle name. Very common in Hispanic cultures that you don't give children a middle name, you let them collect those additional names as they go through certain milestones in their lives. But he didn't go through those certain milestones in his lives for all kinds of complex reasons. So he literally has no middle name. But do you know how many official systems require him to have a middle name? Like we like to call him Noné, which is none, because sometimes he has to put none in there. And I've also encouraged him to put null, <laughs> but that could be a problem too, because null is an actual real name, right? Yeah, the value I mean, null. There was an article I remember once seen about people who yeah. their last name was Null and they got it. They had so many issues. Causing database problems. <laughs> yeah. And there's the same one is with license plates where someone got the license plate, no tag, but no tag is what cops do when they uh, leave a ticket, say on a vehicle without tags that's parked in the wrong place. So he started getting all these no tag fines to his license plate. 
because null tag was actually playing the role of a null, it, null indicator, but he had the value and it was being entered into systems as a value, not as there's no tag on this. And we've heard these other times with NMI, which is no middle initial, um, or NA because it's not applicable, but someone has a name that they've shortened or their actual name is not, and they have NA. So I, we can spend this whole hour talking about names, but. <laughs> but these are some great examples of some issues and horror stories that can come from, whether it's personal experiences or as a company, the things that are coming in, yeah. the data that yeah. you're trying to collect here that you thought was simple, but really right. isn't. And for instance, like, so it ends up becoming real on enterprise projects or any project because people think that putting constraints on data at the time it's collection always makes that data better, right? So they think that make last first name and last name must, you know, no nulls. There must right. be a first name. But as through uh, this blog post, I mean, there are whole cultures where people don't have a family name or last name. They're never given one. So I have a good friend from there, from Indonesia, and she immigrated to the U.S. without a family name because she only ever got her given name. Um, and she learned quite quickly that if you wanted to have a driver's license, if you wanted to sign a contract, if you wanted to have telephone service, you had to have a last name, right? Um, and I get why people design systems that way, because they'll say, well, in Florida, everyone has a last name. No, not everyone has a last name. And it's not just because they're from Indonesia. It could be that, you know, someone has been admitted to a hospital without, you know, they might say what their first name is, but or it's a child who doesn't know what their last name is. Like, people put these constraints on their systems thinking they're making the data better and they're making it worse. Okay, so th th this is this is this is fascinating because we're, we we always think about constraints, right? As you just said, is is to maintain integrity, right? They're integrity constraints, but then we are having that disconnect from what could happen in the real world. So, what do we do then? Do we is it is it? I mean, I see one side of the spectrum is you go and add your constraints yeah. into your data into your databases, but then what should we just take constraints out, or or what is that balance that we should go do? Because yeah, there's a, a trade-off here. Right. Like yeah. you decide to take those constraints away and now you've got this mess coming in and now mm -hmm. you're thinking, well, how do I clean this up? That's or right. what if people introduce something that really messes things up yeah. on my side? Yeah. How do you decide on that? So, of course, the big answer is it depends, yeah. right? How sensitive the data is, how important it is, like where are you going to trade? Like every design decision we make is based on cost, benefit and risk if we're doing it right. So maybe like what a dba would tell you is well we'll just give everyone a default value in case one isn't supplied so that's great because they'll choose something like xxxxx as the default value for last name or middle name until you find out that someone literally has changed their last name to xxxxx right like you can't force these false phonols i call them these false nulls into a world where basically anyone is free to do anything they want with a name. Like I'm sure while I know that null is a, t is a really valid family name. I bet you there are people all the world, world who are changing their names to that just to mess with the world. Right? Like people do that stuff, like having a character for your name or saying you have no name at all. 
or your name is numbers, right? There's all of these choices that you can't code around personal behaviors. Um, but there are things that should be null, like middle name. Like most systems don't really need your middle name. They're just trying to make it easier to find you in their system. So in, in the old days, the way we did that, we asked people for their phone number, right? Not just video rental, all the time, retailers would you know, put your account on your phone number. If you called your bank, they knew you didn't know your account number, but you knew your phone number. And then we fast forward to now where, um, you know, some people just use Skype as their phone because they don't use their phone for phoning. They use their phone for data. Um, there are, of course, I probably have at my fingertips five or seven phone numbers. Like, which one did I give you? You know, and when people ask me when I call into a system, like they'll ask me what my phone number is. And I'm like, OK, I'm just going to start rattling off a list of them check them all and they're all like what no nope, we'll just go through the three i use every day and we'll do that um there's just uh, like one of the examples i use is a lot of the systems i've worked on you know they collect your home number and your work number but for yeah. a lot of people like me there's not really a difference i just have phone numbers like because i own my own company or you're self-employed or it's even gotten to the point where companies don't give people phone numbers anymore automatically because in certain places in the world you know you have unlimited call on your cell phone you don't want another phone you definitely don't want a landline in your home like the whole concept of phone number the definition of it has changed like your watch has a phone number if it has a sim card your laptop might have a phone number. Your iPad comes with a phone number that they don't tell you what it is. Like there's all of these things. Like if you really did an inventory, I think I did an inventory once and I think I had close to 20 phone numbers. Not that I gave out or used, it just came to me. Hmm. So so we should be designing for for stuff that's going to happen in the future that we don't know. Like all these phone numbers that we're saying, people are going to, we're, we're going to have them or not have them. But and then how much of these are just corner cases that yeah. honestly, honestly, is like, yeah, but how, is is default XXX? You know what? What is the probability that somebody's going to turn their last name into XXX? And actually, if there is, it's probably going to be a handful of people. Do I really care? Am I have to go spend all this yeah. time to go design it? Like, honestly, no. Like, so fine. Maybe putting default value XXX is enough. And let's let's keep going. Well, so the trade off with false nulls, with phone nulls is that everyone who uses the data after that point has to know what the phone nulls are, right? Bingo. So self-service BI, reporting, filtering, extractions. And I once had to migrate like a multi-tenant database into their separate tenant databases. You know, I can do that. Just have some criteria for splitting it out. And then I kept running into all these problems. And I realized it was because that particular database had let all the developers who'd ever touched it over 15 years decide in their code what their full faux null was going to be. So sometimes it was an X, sometimes it was NA, sometimes it was an underscore because underscores don't show up much on a grid. Like if you're in Excel, the underscore kind of oh. disappears. <laughs> sometimes it was a space, sometimes it was the empty character. Sometimes it was an unprintable character, like a carriage return or a line feed. 
I think in the end, I had like seven or 10 faux nulls in the same column also, and then in multiple columns, but seven in the same column used before I could start pulling out the data. And that just leads to chaos. So faux nulls can work, especially if there's an industry standard one like NMI for no metal initial, sort of. Um, But the other thing is there are some uh data types that you can't put fake data in like date like in most databases date 1900 uh, january 1st 1900 right right so whatever (laughs) them does is they go with the epic dates in all the systems so january 1st 1990 was used by this system this database used this number linux uses this and everything and then the problem is so let's say you put uh january 1st 1900 and then someone runs a report on all their customers and finds out, you know, the average age of their customer is 200 years yeah. and they don't know why. I, that- I have, I have definitely gotten seen, seen that stuff and, and immediately, you know, yeah. something's wrong and, 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 and it's just yeah. like, a, and then what do you do? Okay. So now I have to go filter out this, but then where are these numbers used all over the place? Uh, mm-hmm. These dates and, and in, number, ask, in right? number columns, like with a number data type, it messes with your math if you don't know. And then in certain values, certain columns, even minus nine, 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 nine could be a real value, right? Like, like some people say, oh, set it to zero, set salary to zero if we don't know what it is. Well, there might be people in the system who have a salary of zero, or there might be people in the system where zero is their value until they've negotiated their salary. I mean, it's all, and then all of a sudden it skews your data. And again, self-service BI, data scientists, data analysts aren't told all these nifty features and embedded in their data. I remember once working with a customer and again, they had the column price and they had pulled the, the price of what was sold yeah. and z- literally 0.002% of the rows had a null value in yeah. the price. Yeah. And what was the price? nobody knew so mm-hmm. we defaulted it as zero and was well, that the right thing to do i don't know i mean yeah. could we have changed things I, I mean that's the argument it's like ah it's just a, it's a it's a small thing like just put it at zero yeah, it's it's but yeah. and, and, and maybe it's true it's a small thing it doesn't affect it fine like life goes mm-hmm. on but yeah. i think this is for me it's an issue of the culture it's, yes. a, it's in the people aspect right the people in the process yep. aspect you're like well you do that for uh, for zero point zero two percent of the rows that have prices zero. Okay, uh, then the next thing comes along, and the next thing comes along, and then suddenly everybody does does whatever they want, and we don't we don't know what they're doing. And then all these people leave the organization, and then now you're looking into all this data. Like you will yeah. come in, like what the heck? You have to spend so much time trying to go figure this out. So. I think people at some point were like, yeah, we need to be efficient. We need to get this done. It's fine. It's 0.02%, whatever. Yeah. But that culture of like, oh, let me go, let me go fast. Yeah. Let's just keep that. No, that's, I think that's the change that we need to go do. And for me, it's always about what I, what, when I get so annoyed when people say it's data janitorial work, I'm cleaning up your data. I'm like, yeah. no, there's, this is the, essence of your data is this yes. knowledge that's embedded, right? Somebody decide, made a decision to go say, I'm going to put XX or NA or this, and it means something. And that just gets lost. And that we have this culture of where knowledge doesn't matter. And I think that's yeah. why we're screwed up. That was or, my rant. Right. 
So here's one about names. It also applies to the null thing. So I get DBAs and developers who tell me we have to make everything not null because it improves performance, right? And there is a slight truth to that. So for instance, having a nullable column in a relational table often leads to that column carrying an extra byte in order to hold the null indicator and no value in the actual value part. So yeah, an extra byte here across a trillion rows. Yeah, there's a trade-off. There's a cost benefit and risk to that. But what's the cost benefit and risk of making up data in a date of birth field? Like, it, it, are we really going to let performance over, like, like say you're a retailer and you have a field that's optional for customers to put in their date of birth. So first thing you got to know is that people lie. So probably 33 to 75% of those dates of birth are wrong, right? Because, I mean, if it's required, I generally don't give my real date of birth unless I'm sure they need it for their business processes. Right. So, you know, you register at a website. Some places ask for your date of birth. And the only reason they're asking for your date of birth is to determine if you're 13 years or older so that they can comply with COPPA privacy laws for children in the US. They don't need my date of birth. They just need to know that I'm over 13, right? So I'm not gonna tell the truth there if I'm ordering you know, some Kleenex from a website, right? But the other is that impacts performance is not supporting, um, what's it called? Like uh, extended character sets right so that everyone can spell their name the way it's actually spelled instead of using their computer name right so um so double byte characters and all of those things yes it makes your columns twice as wide depending on what you're dealing with but really is might it be more important that people be able to give their actual name rather than their computer name like it'd be nice uh, if we could do that. So there's a great blog post out there uh, called Ode to a Shipping Label. And it happens to show what happens when um, funny characters, as most Americans call it, foreign characters, they call it, even though my name has, a, and it's all about Lopez. So Lopez traditionally is spelled with an accent over the O. I never spell it that way to a computer because I know it'll get, um, you know, mangled everywhere. But it, it's basically an ode to a shipping label. It shows the shipping label that came out on the parcel that was delivered. And it's just an L, a bunch of escape characters that have been escaped. So the escape indicator has been escaped. And it's like escape, escape, whatever. Off it goes. And then there's a Z or a Z at the end, depending on how you spell. And it's a beautiful poem. Like whoever wrote this, I've forgotten, but Ode to a Shipping Label, hilarious. Just to see how the data is messed up because systems couldn't handle a name spelled correctly. Oh, I, I, you need to go post this uh, yeah. uh, on, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. I, I really yeah. want to go do this. Yeah. Um, okay, so, I'm, so what's going through my mind right now is how do we deal with this today? And what are the, I see that the kind of the, the root of the problems, or it seems to me is that we, the, 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 the data folks, the IT folks and all that, they're the ones who will make these decisions. 
and they see it as well. It's just kind of it is what it is. I mean, they 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 do it from from their perspective without realizing the impact that those things can have. Yeah. So yeah. it so that we we're in this problem because the decisions that are being made are not taking into account the, the the business users or the applications and the implications. And, and the folks who are making the decisions don't know about that. So we need to have yeah. more people in the room making those decisions. Yeah. So then say, okay, well, then the, the more the, the, the business side or the folks who understand how this data is going to be used for whatever applications, they really need to be the ones doing this type of modeling and coming up and understanding the complexities of the world, understanding the trade-offs that, that are, are presented to them and under and, and make and present, we're going to go do it this way for this reason. We understand that yeah. these are the these are the 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 the, the setbacks that we may have. Let's go document this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, th that's and, how I'm and, seeing it. And have those intellectual arguments because some of these trade-offs, the IT folks or the, uh, the data folks alone are not necessarily going to understand that, yeah. uh, oh, you, you know what? We don't, we don't need that to be the identifier or like we don't need, you know, I, I guess, you know, we, or we need that context and it needs to be accurate. Like some of these decisions are just outside the realm of what they're really aware yeah. of. And, and you want that intellectual discussion. Yeah. And so that's like the bane of most data management professionals or data architects, right? Because there are some things that people propose that are flat out wrong. Like I remember having this debate with a developer who was adamant that you could figure out someone's area code on their phone number based on their zip code. So I'll let that sink in for a minute. How would you go from someone's zip code to automatically knowing the area code of their phone number. Well, I, I can come up with an area code. Is that the right one? I, I don't know. No, but but the thing is, it's not a one-to-one -one re relationship, yeah. right? Good point. Those, exactly. those, those polygons are not exact matches, right? Right. So going back, so I'm old enough that I we had phone numbers that didn't have area codes, right? Or you did, but you didn't have to use them because there was only one area code for each area on the map, right? Mm -hmm. There was a one-to-one -one relate, like the city of Los Angeles, all of it had one area code, right? And then we started getting more and more area codes because phone numbers weren't long enough. So right. we all, so we add to the fact that phone numbers have literally changed. I've said this now a couple of times, just for that reason, Area code used to mean something back then. You could literally tell where someone lived or worked based on their area code, right? Mm -hmm. Now, like most people like me, if I were to move to Vancouver, I'm going to keep all my phone numbers with my Toronto area codes. I'm not going to change them. I don't want to go through the pain of that. I don't want to have to update all of my systems and i can do that now because the business model of phones and communicating has changed to the point where if long distance is nearly free for everyone around you then you can keep your long distance phone number you couldn't do that first of all the phone company wouldn't let you do that in the past and even if you did no one would call you because it was long distance so people now get phone numbers and they keep them no matter where they live and the guy who was doing all this design, he was, let's, well, well, the name I use for myself, experienced with several decades of experience. And he lived in a rural part of the US where there was only one area code around him. And he could not understand, no matter how many times we explained it, 
And I was sitting right there working in Oregon and I'm like, here's my phone. It's got a Toronto area code. Like you, you can't, and I don't have a zip code on top of it. <laughs> like you cannot tell someone's, like what he had done was dropped the area code table in production. And because it was unneeded, we didn't need to store a list of area codes and associate that with customers because we already had their zip code. Oh my goodness. What are, what are the things that we kind of take for granted that mm -hmm. you think that are going to change dramatically later on? Um, I think there's going to continue to be evolution of phone numbers where your contact mechanism, which is the word I use, might not be a number anymore. Like right now, people could call me on Skype based on my username and they could call it from a phone they pick up, right? There used to be Skype phones too. And they could call it. And the same thing with Teams, like Teams can have the meeting system, has phone numbers associated with people, with meetings and everything. But you could literally call that phone number by putting in someone's name. And just like looking it up in the phone book, but we don't have to do that anymore. So I think we'll keep calling it phone number, just like we keep saying that we taped a TV show, even though there's no tape involved, that <laughs> the concept of a phone number will just become something more aligned to contact mechanism. So like, I, think that yeah. will go away. I mean, your comment there at the end of contact, me uh, contact mechanism kind of gets into the, 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 this concept of resilience, right? Yeah. And are we making choices about the words that we're using and the data models that we're putting together that are more resilient to change? Um, yeah. should, should we be thinking more about that? Or do you think, you know, there's we, one of the common topics that comes up on our show is this battle between efficiency and resilience, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, where, where, where are you on that spectrum when it comes to the conversation that we're having today? Do we need to lean more into resilience? Um, so does resilience here mean future proofing? Is that what you mean? Yeah, future-proofing, yeah. uh, ability to be dynamic to change. Yes. So um, my data modeling style definitely has gone from what we now call specific modeling. Like you might have had columns in your database, cell phone number, landline number, mm -hmm. work landline, work cell phone. And you did that because you had, like it was fairly normalized that everyone had those things or referred to them that way. Well, now since that's all changed, I do model it like in the data model, I call it contact mechanism. I don't see humans calling it that, but basically we have a contact mechanism and it has a type and it might even have hours available for contact. Like, so we're treating it more like something you can figure about a person and you're not designing in technology specifics that we know will change maybe even in the next month, right? right like yeah. I don't know if people know that you can call people via Facebook, right? It's and, more contextual and more yeah. centered around the use case of that information versus the specifics of how you collected it or the specifics of how you're yeah. going to paint it on the screen, right? Yeah, exactly. And that, that type of modeling is called... Um, generalized modeling so that you're trying to future-proof. So Lynn Silverstone in one of his books of universal data modeling patterns, he refers to this as specific and generalized. And I help him come up with those terms because we used to call that more abstract. So we had specific and abstract data modeling. But now when you use the word abstract or abstract, 
people think of an abstraction in modeling and they kept saying that's not abstraction and i'm like yeah that's that's your use of the word i'm using like the human <laughs> use of the word and so we finally gave up on that and called it generalized and specific so every time i can in a database design i'm leaning toward generalized data modeling more and more so instead of modeling a shipping document invoice uh, purchase order as tables we model it something like a inventory document that has a type and that also helps with making models more globalized because not everywhere in the world do they use the term purchase orders or have that e might even as a process and instead of having quarters and annual reporting we have reporting periods because place different places in the world use different systems for how they do financial reporting the trade-off for this because i said everything comes down to cost benefit and risk is then like humans who are reviewing a model they want to see their words on it they want to see hamburger table if they're mcdonald's they want to see hamburger with cheese column and instead we're going to say like product and products have types and products have add-ons and it so it makes it harder to review and confirm a model but the good news is the more future proof it is the more generalized it is the easier it is to correct things on it because you'd just be changing data and not changing database structures with downtime that makes a ton of sense. I, I love some of the best practices that are kind of evolving from this conversation. They started from some of your stories and they're turning into some best practices. Yeah. You know, one thing that also this conversation really leads me to think about is so there's these trade-offs happening. There's these decisions happening. Yeah. Uh, and this kind of becomes this institutional knowledge, which can become problematic if others don't have yeah. it, right? Yeah. Um, what is your take on sharing that institutional knowledge and documenting the data model how important is that oh. do you have practices that you recommend there yeah so very very important um and not just data models but all of these terms and terminology and things so for instance definitely um data repositories and catalogs you know definitely is where you share the other thing that i tell data architects they need to do is if you've done this highly generalized structure in your model and your design, you need to give people sample data in that because what you've done when you've taken a series of tables that were specific and collapsed them into something like inventory control document, you've now taken structures and turned them into actual data, right? So the, the name of the table used to tell you what type of document it is. Now something in there called document type tells you what type of document it is. You need to provide sample data so that people can peek through and actually see how it works. You know, um, we went through this decades ago just with the concept in modeling called business party, where instead of having, you know, separate tables for vendor, employee, customer, uh, consultant and everything. We created something called business party that had subtypes of customer or had roles that people played because you could be, you could have someone who was both a customer and an employee and they were the same person. So that was a generalization that was introduced and it took decades for people to understand the cost benefit and risk of using a 
generalized approach. So instead of having five copies of people's data or companies' data, you had one, and then you knew they filled certain roles in relationship to your company. So one of the one of the things that is like the super hot topic, right, is the whole data mesh. And one of the things that the big areas there, or how I perceive it, is this balance between centralization and decentralization. Yeah. And I've talking to a lot of customers and colleagues. Um, I've I'm coming to the position that we need to be able when it comes to modeling. I think first of all, knowledge and semantics are crucial, and we need to be able to go centralize some things and then and it, so, such that we can then go let the decentralized teams go run. Mm -hmm. And the connection I'm doing with all this is these generalizations, these models, uh, how we're modeling, those are things that should probably be governed in a centralized manner. And, pro and the decentralized kind of domains, they can go take those and say, well, I can now extend that for what particular use case I may have. Mm -hmm. And at some point, if, if a lot of these, uh, uh, like phone number, right? Phone number is a type of contact mechanism. Maybe that should also be centralized, but maybe somebody else is going to go extend that to, a, to, to, to something specific to their domain. Yeah. I, I, what are your thoughts about what I just said? Yeah. So that is, so in one of my presentations, I talk about, so you used earlier the term lookup table. And that's one of my little pet peeves is that every table is a lookup table plus one man's lookup table is another man's universe, right? To, to twist that quote. And the reason I say that is like when people talk about lookup, lookup tables, let's just use the example of states and provinces as a table. People always refer to that as a lookup table. But if you're in the compliance part of an organization where you're having to comply with state and federal laws, and you're having to keep track of people based on states that they work in versus live in versus have visited and all that stuff, that state table is just not some measly lookup table. It's like, it's a standardized, you know, fact table practically with all this stuff spinning off on it. But to most people, it's just something that gets printed on an envelope, right? Or matches your driver's license or doesn't, right? So, you know, the, the whole thing about that when you generalize, there has to be someone who manages those type tables, right? So inventory control document type, person type, or company type, or whatever it is. And that has to be governed. It has, because everything bridges off it. I call those tables or those entities controlling entities because they control system behavior, they control rules, they control reports. And those need to be, if not centrally managed, just highly governed. Because I mean, in one example I use with state table again, so state was more than just something that showed up on a shipping label, but not quite a compliance example. And a developer was adamant that the state code for Hawaii was HA. So he went in to the state table and fixed HI to HA, and of course, a whole bunch of stuff broke, right? See, now you're taking a drink because you're both taking a drink because you know I'm these just things. Imagine that. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. And so, like, all this stuff broke. And I remember I got this call in the middle of the night, like, all these jobs are failing because, of course, the value wasn't there for the control processes that were controlling for it. And I went in and found that 
someone had changed it. And I went to this developer and I'm like, what? one, you're losing access to production for making a change without going through our governance process. And two, like, why would you do this? Like, do you know that our whole system's been working for years? And if it was wrong, it's wrong everywhere. And, and you could have just used the internet to validate your belief. And he's like, no, for sure. Like I have a friend who lives there and I'm like, okay, let's go to the U S postal service standard or whatever it was where the state codes were done. Um, and I sat there giving him my old lady lecture about how state codes weren't standardized until zip codes came in the U S and all the addresses were standardized then. Um, and that we used to have three character state codes and uh, for some states and two character ones. And, and he was just, I, he's like, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's HA. And I'm like, well, we're putting it back to HI to get our systems up and running. And now you can do a change request and we'll see how many people agree with you. <laughs> and, oh. and so there is data when you generalize these things, you have to recognize that some data can't be changed without seeing these interdependencies. We could do another episode of just horror stories. Like we got Halloween. Actually, I think uh, hopefully we'll be at the next enterprise data world or whatever. We'll do that. And we'll, we'll have a live catalog and cocktail session with folks. And we'll just kind of share horror stories. Should. So June is the next data governance conference. The DGIQ. I just saw yeah, that. Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, I, look, I told you fly, time flies. Like we could keep talking yeah. more about this. I, I'm really excited to actually do this live. Uh, but we, we have to go to our lightning round. So let's okay. move on to our lightning round uh, presented by data.world. So I'm going to kick it off. First one, should all data practitioners go through a data modeling course? Um, yes, but I think it's all IT workers. Oh, so not data. Okay. Yeah. All IT workers. To mm. understand the nature of data and all these things we've talked about and how to read a data model. I might be biased, though. I like that. All right. Yeah. If we could, we'd love to have everybody actually take the data course. Uh, make that mandatory for everyone. Um, so next lightning round question. Do you find that the interest in transformation tools like DBT and, and some of the new associated roles like analytics engineer, mm -hmm. has that been helpful to data modeling? Well, it hasn't hurt it. So let me say, I'm going to say yes, like for sure. This one's easy because every, as every profession matures, it realizes it has a need for specialists in certain processes and roles. I know the agile community disagrees because they want everyone to be a generalist. Um, no other profession in the world works that way. So I don't know why ours would work that way. The full stack data yeah. person. It is an exciting prospect, but specialization does help in some of these areas. Yeah, but even when they say full stack, they don't mean data. Yeah. <laughs> well, now there's like a full stack within data too, right? But oh anyway. yeah. Yeah. All right. Third question: Will graph databases and graph technology make start making data modeling easier? Uh, I'm going to say no to that but not because I'm anti-graph database or graph processing. I think it's just a new set of tools and processes and thought patterns 
that apply to data stories that are absolutely about the relationship between things. And therefore, it's, optimized, it's optimal to use graph thinking and graph tools to do that data, but not all data is emphasizes the relationship between them over just the data. Yeah, I, 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 I tend to agree with you because, well, I mean, gra graphs my life, and I will say that uh, modeling will be, is, I mean, the way you model things is the way you access it, but when you, but still yeah. thinking about generalized uh, contact mechanisms and all, like that yeah. still exists and you still have to go through that process we're yeah. talking about, regardless of this graphs yeah. relational. So yeah, yeah, that's why I, I tend to agree. All right, Tim, last one. So last question, will data modeling ever become easy? <laughs> I think it's easy. No, <laughs> um, no. It's an art of science is what I say. Yeah, so that's a setup software, I know. But until the world gets easy, data modeling won't be easy. Which Love therefore, it. no, it's not, and it will not be. <laughs> so that, we'll take that as a no. <laughs> All right. Well, TTT, Tim, take it away with our takeaways. Awesome. Well, this was such a great discussion, Karen. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, some of the big things that really came away for me were, you know, experts often think that data is simple and if they could just approach it in the right way, then uh, then easy, easy. But they're really only thinking about a small part of the overall iceberg when they say something like that. And I loved your comment that um, uh, from the book that, uh, you know, falsehoods that programmers believe around names and, you know, things like names are never going to change. Right. That that's that's not true. Right. And there's there's a bigger picture here. There's a lot that's underneath the water in terms of that iceberg. And a big chunk of our conversation today involves some stories and really thinking about the trade-offs that you need to make around sort of constraints and how you're collecting the data, how you're storing the data, things like around default values, right? There's pros and cons of that. Uh, nulls, um, what you called faux nulls, right? Um, uh, optional versus required information, um, having a global perspective versus just a single region. Uh, the semantics of what you're asking for, um, things like corner cases, like maybe it happens infrequently enough, like Juan mentioned that like, maybe that, maybe we don't need to worry about that. Right. Uh, performance considerations, either real ones or just perceived ones. Um, and then the use cases that you're using the data for. So, and, and there were others as well, but all these trade-offs are really interesting and make for really, really important decisions that we have to make as, as data modelers in our organizations. And I got there are a couple of quotes that you had here, like uh, just exceptions are not really <laughs> exceptions. I love that. Um, and what you, you said already a couple of times, if you want the model to be simple, we'll make the world simple. And that's not going to happen. So it's you have to live with this complexity. You have to embrace complexity. Mm -hmm. uh, one man's lookup table is another man's universe. And I think this is another <laughs> very important thing that we like. Oh, well, yeah, that's a simple thing. And that, but. No, this can have so much other implications need to be governed in a different way. So yeah. that, that, I really love those quotes you had. And we were kind of started finding all these best practices that from our conversation. So we really need to consider these trade-offs very carefully. This mm -hmm. is something that should not be taken lightly. And when we look, consider these trade-offs, we really need to get the business folks, the subject matter experts, the application developers who are going to go do something with the create applications of the data and get them involved in those trade-offs and those decisions. Mm -hmm. It, we need to check the shape of the data. If you happen to go do an average on the on 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 dates of, from birth dates and they're 200 years old, well, 
guess where there's a, there's problems in that stuff. And we really need to go document uh, what these trade-offs are, what the decisions, what this stuff actually means, right? And that's where things like data catalogs will come into place because that's where we want to put all this stuff together. And I really, one of the, one of the main takeaway I'm having here is this generalized modeling. And it's this balance between the generalized and specific and actually uh, the generalized is, is, is thinking with change in mind and also kind of preparing kind of for this resilience and future proof and connecting with so many of the other conversations we've had. I think there's also something very interesting that happens when they look at the data mesh, right? And this balance between centralization and decentralization. Mm-hmm. Those are our takeaways. How do we do? <laughs> really good. I wanted to throw in one that every good design decision comes down to cost, benefit, and risk. And if you are debating with someone on what path to take, if you can express the cost, benefit, and risk of not just your side, but all the other options, management's going to lean towards you because you sound like you understand the problem and all of their trade-offs. That is gold. Cost, benefit, and risk. Yeah. Karen, back to you. Two questions. One, what's your advice about data, about life, open-ended? And second, who should we invite next? Okay. So the first one is, like, I think I just gave my advice about cost, benefit, and risk. But I would say data lasts longer than code, so you have to treat it better than you do software. So think about that. And then the person next, so I don't have a name per se, but a role. If you haven't had someone on there, I would love to have you talk to someone about the rapid changing data requirements during the pandemic in the health field. So not just about data during COVID, but having to respond to everything changing about a business. So... I mean, I can think of some people, but I'm reluctant to name them because it might be compelling them. <laughs> but we, that's we will, what I like to see. And if we'll, you want a celebrity, you should talk to Lynn Silverstone, who is a data modeling book author. And all right. Well, we, we will definitely be following up uh, with some of the uh, names that you can recommend because I think that's an interesting topic. And uh, this is, again, I really am looking forward to be able to go see you in person again, mm-hmm. have this conversation more on like, let's talk about horror stories. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, d- dealing with Knowles and all this missing data is something that I've been very fascinated. As I mentioned to you, we're, we're, we we have this university, this research project that we're, we're, yeah. we'll be presenting the results about a big survey that we did with data practitioners about what do knolls actually mean and i can tell you that's all over the place so can't <laughs> wait to wish you get that karen thank you so much for your time today this was fascinating discussion uh thanks to data Art world for supporting catalog cocktails every day because yeah i get to have cocktails or yeah. whiskeys every wednesday and chat with cool people like you karen yeah. thank you so much cheers cheers karen cheers. this is catalog and cocktails a special thanks to data.world for supporting the show, Carly Berghoff for producing, John Loyans and Brian Jacob for the show music, and thank you to the entire Cataloging Cocktails fan base.